Hello and welcome to Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we've seen If Beale Street Could Talk a second time. Yes. And uh, in the meantime, last night, individually, we each watched Moonlight as well, as we yes. said we would. Because, uh, well, for me, it was the first time I'd seen it since at the cinema. Like, yes. what, two, two and a half years ago? Yes. For you? I'd seen it, no, I'd seen it a couple of times, but it has been a long time uh, since I've seen it. It's the first time since its original release that I've seen it. And I wanted a chance to sort of look at it again, rem- remembering that... I'd found the first two parts of it. It's split into three parts, Moonlight. And so, remembering that I'd found the first two parts of it fantastic, and the mm. third less fantastic, and obviously you have got issues with the ending that we'll go, go yeah. into, um, we both wanted to uh, kind of revisit that. So we'll talk about that first, I think. Sure. Um, so spoilers for Moonlight and if Bill Street could talk coming up. Um, so I suppose, uh, let's leave talk of the very ending until for a little bit. What did you make of the film in general? Well, I think it's it's really beautiful, um, and I was very touched. And actually, I kind of, if anything, I think uh, you know this current viewing um, brings the film up in my estimation. Really, I thought those you know those sequences were just really beautiful and poetic, and it had kind of um, an energy. I, I and uh, it, it was full of feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, for example, something struck me even more this time around than originally. Um, you know, the conversation with Juan, with the Maharshali Ali character on the beach, right, which kind of gives the film its title. Um, the scene where he's teaching him to swim and the music in that I found incredibly beautiful. The scene where the young his young friend is forced to betray him and then he comes back into the classroom the next day and just takes a chair and smacks the guy. Yeah, that's one of those moments. That's just you remember the moment. Yeah. Um, So all of that, I kind of... The mother... um, Naomi Harris. Yeah, the being chased. I mean, I thought thought that was all incredibly beautiful, actually. It it lived up to, to... Well, it, it not only lived up to my memory of it, it was better than I remembered it. Yeah, I, I think I uh, tend to agree. I think um, uh, the the moment where um, Chiron fights back and lashes out with the chair mm. is incredible, and it's one of those moments. And I think it's a little bit like something that I s- talked about in the "If Bill Street Could Talk" podcast the first time about you mentioned there being so little anger where there really needed to be some. Mm. You felt that it was missing some, um, and there's definitely an argument for that. But I think uh, on the other hand the restriction of anger, and you see very little of it in Moonlight as well, means that that moment is much more of a shock. It's much more charged. I think it comes out of, really comes out of nowhere and you feel the catharsis of it so viscerally, mm. you know. And, um, I mean, I don't think I've ever like been more with a character than mm. when he smashes the bully with the chair. Yes. Um, and then also when he, the, the look that he gives, because then he's taken away by the, I think it's taken away by the cops, actually. Yeah, it's yes. and, um, and the look that he gives uh, Kevin, his friend, for, yes. for betraying him, and Kevin knowing that he's betrayed him, having done this hazing ritual where he's punched him in the face. I think it's more complex than that. Yeah? Yes, I do. Because I think um, 
Chiron knows that his friend has no option but to do it. Mm. He also knows that his friend has been trying to protect him, right? I kind of, you, yeah, he smacked him, but why doesn't he stay down? Yeah. And actually he says that, say, yeah, like they're both in situations that are kind of forced on them, right? Um, but, you know, it's, it's actually Chiron forcing his friend to do it again and again, yeah. It is, I think, but I think that's kind of, there's like an unspoken conversation going on in that scene between the two of them. The reason he's getting up is because I won't give in to the bullies, but he is by keeping on punching him. He, he, he also has the option to not take part in this ritual. Yes, and kind uh, Kevin of, does. Yeah, and be destroyed himself. So I think, um, you know, Kevin wants to play a game where you blow and you keep down and, yeah, and get out of it easily. And there's a stubbornness to Chiron at that point, which is also the moment that he blossoms into a kind of a personal strength. It's his moment of standing up to everything, really. That's literally it. He's literally yeah. standing up for himself. That's right. Um, so that whole scene is more complex than, you know, just... Is it Kevin? Kevin's his friend, yeah. Kevin beating him up or betraying him. It is more complex um, than that, that's for sure. And actually, I think that's kind of... Um, part of why the film resonates and of course it's also kind of the building block to the last third of the film yeah um the other thing i would say is that i i was i suppose it's something that i remembered about it but i hadn't really uh put into words is there's a there's a feeling somehow of kind of emptiness to the to the world in it i think it's because um most scenes in moonlight have two or three characters maximum you have scenes in the classroom, you have scenes sort of around the school, but um, for the most part, the scenes are um, almost like a minimalist kind of conversations between just a few people. And the world, in a way, kind of doesn't feel that rich because of it. Whereas in comparison to, to If Bill Street Could Talk, it's absolutely full of characters and locations. Well, and, and I think the response to that is very simple. Yeah. Because, you know, the Chiron character has no love throughout his life, really. Mm. You know, he's alone. So, you know, he gets the care and concern of Juan and his girlfriend. And you know that his mother, deep down, does love him, but, you know, she's a drug addict and kind of, she's a slave to her habit. And, you know, when her body propulses her to her need, he basically doesn't exist. So, you know, part of his withdrawnness and so on is a kind of... Um, uh, uh, he's drawn in in himself. Nothing exists outside of his own head. And every kind of excursion outside of that, you know, aside from his friendship with Kevin, is a danger. There's a word for it. It's like, I forget what it is. I'm thinking atomism or something like that, but it's not quite that. It's, you know, when, when, when somebody's like completely withdrawn into themselves. Introverted, isolation. Well, all of those are kind of a bit synonyms, but mm. but I'm thinking more than that. It's kind of like it's in a it's like a turtle. It's an in a, you know, but more so, it's like if you're always kind of cut off. It's a kind of right. Um, yeah, I don't know what the word is you thinking of, but I but I think we get the point. Yeah. Um, no, it's true, and, and it's not meant as a criticism, really. More of just a kind of observation. I think I think what Barry Jenkins is very good at in both films is bringing you into the mental state and the headspace of the main characters. Obviously, in If Bill Street Could Talk, 
it's very deliberately Tish's story that's being told by Tish, um, and and that's narrated as well. So you get into other characters' headspaces, you know, particularly uh, Fonny's a little bit, but it's primarily Tish. As you said in the first podcast, like I felt like I fell in love with, uh, you know, uh, Fonny the same way that Tish did. I think it was evoked really beautifully and mm. I think the same thing is going on in Moonlight though it's a little bit more indirect like, you know it's not narrated at all and actually Chiron says almost nothing yes. a lot of the time um, but that speaks to sort of that, that feeling of of emptiness emptiness sounds like it's a negative and it's not really it's just I think it's I think it is just a descriptor of but the person was alienated from the world around them and part of the reason why he's alienated and not connected to anything is because, you know, not only does he not feel loved, he actually feels oppressed and hated and chased. And, yeah. you know, so actually he's both afraid of the world. Uh, yeah, so he's afraid. Yeah, so simple yeah. as that. Um, so let's get to the ending. Yeah, let's talk about the ending. So there's one thing that I think would be, would be useful to pick up on or, or to kind of structure the talk of the ending is when I watched it last night, because when I watched it the first time, I didn't really pick up on problems with the ending. Mm. And it was only when you described uh, the various problems you had that I started to think about them. So when I watched the film again last night, it was really on my mind. And, and I think actually there are... The problem with the ending is really twofold. I think it's partly the problem with the entire third act in that I don't think Chiron is believable as a drug dealer, as you brought up before. Yeah. And I think the other problem is actually directly the final few shots where they're in Kevin's I would agree. house. These are two slightly separate issues. Well, they are separate, but they are related. Yes. So do you want to sort of... Well, they're separate insofar, you know, as they're distinct. Yeah. But they're related insofar as, to me, it kind of... It speaks of cowardice to represent homosexual love. <laughs> yeah. So I think the... Um, you could have had the Chiron character as a drug dealer in the sense that, you know, he's made to be a teetotaler and, um, you know, very much in control of his body and, you know, mm. kind of, yeah, he only eats certain things. He doesn't take anything. Yeah, he's a, he's he's always in control. And he's always in control because, you know, partly he's afraid of giving himself away, right? I guess, you know. So I, I think you could have had him, yeah, there, w- there would have been a rationale yeah, for someone so in control, so lucid, so, con- yeah, mm. wanting to be controlling and so on. But I think it's impossible to have, you know, a virgin be a drug lord. Actually, the scene that I picked up on mostly in um, in, in kind of not believing him as a, as a drug dealer is the one in which they try and introduce him as a drug dealer, where he's with one of his uh, sort of employees and he's saying, you're short on the money you brought yes. back. And then it, and he's supposed to be getting quite uh, threatening with him and then it turns out he's fucking with him yes. and the point is to say I'm fucking with you because if you can't handle me fucking with you yeah, all the guys yeah. on this corner are going to fuck with you as well um, but I don't believe any part of that scene really I don't I don't believe the performance that Chiron is giving I don't believe the performance that the actor is giving either really no it doesn't it just doesn't the actor is not very good um, no and I think the idea is just not very good. I, do, I just don't... I, I think... I can totally believe Chiron at that age um, would be just as uh, kind of introverted and and, mm. and, and a virgin mm. were he not a drug dealer. Mm. 
I can believe okay, it. No, no, well, that's, what, that's what I'm getting to. Like, if he was something else, I could totally believe he, he being who he is. I mean, I just, I just don't think you can be a drug dealer and be a virgin. <laughs> you know, it's. I mean, there he is with the crown in that car. You know, playing that music with the grill in his teeth, constantly exposed to sex and sexual situations, and sex and sexual situations which are going to demarcate whether he can continue to be the kingpin of, you know, this area. And I, I just... The guy, there's a guy who gets know. in the car with him and then says something like, where are the girls at? Yeah. And he just doesn't answer well, in that way of like, I don't want to, you know, don't want to talk about it. But I think, it just doesn't strike you as convincing at all. Yeah. So um, I think you could have made him a drug pin if you'd made him sexual, you know. Um... Because you could, you could, you could imagine that Chiron had undergone a transformation, right? Mm. So you know, I mean, he fought back. He ended up doing time, you know, and then he ended up in a different city. He could have reinvented himself, mm. right, uh, and and maintained the traits of withdrawnness, but you know, those traits kind of being turned into a kind of strength, right? But if you're, you know, if you're in that world, I mean, I just kind of, I just didn't find that convincing. So, so there were two things, right? First, that I didn't find it convincing. And the film is telling you over and over again, right? Because, you know, they have the car and the car has the crown. And, you know, re- the film is constantly reinforcing to you that he's a kingpin, the kingpin of all of this, right? Um, I think the reason that he's been made into a drug dealer is, is as a kind of, Filmmaker, it, it's a storytelling thing to compare him with um, Juan, I yes. think, from the start. And I do think that there's an, like Juan is, um, if you don't believe Chiron as a drug dealer, which I think we both agree we really can't, mm. you do have to have some issue with Juan, I think. He's more believable, but um, he is extremely uh, sort of accepting and forward thinking in some ways. <laughs> And um, and you know, kind of takes uh, uh, Sharon kind of slightly under his wing in a way, and looks after him uh, in the absence of his mum, uh, and teaches him that you know you shouldn't let anyone call you a faggot. But it's okay to be gay. That's mm. in that scene. And um, the the turning Sharon into a drug dealer to kind of compare him to this what becomes a father figure at the start has a very artificial feel to it for me. It feels like something that a filmmaker has written in to try and See, be smart. I agree, but there would have been a way of making it work because, you know, to me, the Juan, the Maharshala Ali character was believable, yeah. you know, because it just kind of connotes, you know, that black lives in the U.S. are hard, that, you know, things are complicated, that you can be a drug dealer and be a nice person mm-hmm. and be a loving person. And yeah, that kind of, that's just kind of the way that life falls for some people, right? And kind of, you know, people are not born in the conditions of their own making, you know, but kind of you have to make the best of what kind of life gives you. And, you know, and you can do that and be kind. Or, yeah, yeah. Or, uh, I mean, I, w- I would have believed that. And I did believe that in the Maharshala character, uh, Maharshala Ali character. But then, it doesn't make sense f- to show Chiron be a drug dealer and not be at ease with his sexuality. Because actually, you know, we've seen that before. We've seen it in The Wire, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you can, you can be in that world and have that life and have 
heterosexuality. And in some places, in some ways, it's at least kind of, you know, it's no more difficult to do that than in other places, you know, and certainly kind of a culture which is, you know, accepting of all of the various ways that humans fail, right? Yeah. Yeah. Would be accepting of that. So, so it's, it's, it's the cowardice around Chiron as an adult that makes one question that comparison. Yeah. That kind of, you know, it's, I don't think it's, I think you could have, you know, and actually you could have shown it as a sign of strength. Yeah. He's kind of, you know, the kingpin because, you know, he's, he, 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 he can defend his gayness in that world. Yeah. But it does. That would have been a way of doing it. Well, it, it, it does, um, as I said, it does feel artificial to him. It does feel like it's been engineered, the story's been engineered to do that and um, and to try and make that comparison, like it, to, to try and make this sort of, well, not foreshadowing, but kind of callback in a way and turning one character into another for this point of comparison. And it, whereas, whereas if you compare that to something, whether you compare that to If Beale Street Could Talk, I think that everything the characters do and the ways they behave come completely organically from what you know about who they are and what you've seen of them. Mm. It doesn't feel like anything's been done in there because it would be good for the story or be interesting. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't yeah. feel like there's been a kind of controlling hand on anything in a way that I think it does a bit in Moonlight. Mm. Um, yeah. I mean, I have mixed feelings because I do think the first two-thirds of Moonlight are, to me, much better than a Beale Street could talk. Um, you know, because I think the third act just doesn't work at all. Um and then I felt really, really cheated. And I feel it even more strongly now after having watched If Beale Street Could Talk, mm-hmm. where Chiron finally reconnects with Kevin, finds somebody who, for whom he's just as meaningful, who they've shared something, someone who he knows, right? And you're even denied a kiss. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, like, you know, there's just a leaning you know, on the shoulder, and you think, why? Why was that choice made? You know, and I think it's a lack of courage in the filmmaker. You know, I think he was afraid of alienating, you know, a kind of... I imagine that the primary audience for this film was probably, you know, a mainstream black audience, and he probably thought it would be homophobic and that they would be put off by a gay male kiss or sh- or a demonstration of affection and that's why he didn't make that choice he didn't have the courage of doing so mm. so actually that's what annoyed me so much about the film and actually it wasn't so much the film itself it was almost like you know that that because it's a really important kind of black film you, by an incredibly talented filmmaker who's obviously a, a talent yeah and who's going to be doing things People were just afraid to pick up on, you know, what is clearly a fault. And in fact, I I just called up Moonlight on IMDb because I wanted to be sure that I remember the names properly. Uh, And, you know, the first review says something like, where is it now? Sorry, let me, give me a second. Ah, user reviews. This is a a telling commentary and it's, it's the first user review that comes up on IMDb. Uh, and it says, I want to nitpick the ending, but it's not yet time for that. Right? Right? Okay. So it's, which I kind of... I Is that all it says? No, no. It okay. says, you know, it, it continues. Maybe I just wanted more, but 
that doesn't necessarily mean the film is at fault, mm. but you know. Yeah. So, but the the key sentence is, I want to nitpick the ending, but it's not time for <laughs> it's, it's not, not yet, yet time, time for that, that, right? As if like this film for the moment is above criticism, mm. right? It's so important and. You know, um, it's it's so new in so many different ways and blah, 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 that let's not find fault with it now, which I think, you know, so so for me, the filmmaker lacked the courage to at least show love. Yeah, to mm -hmm. to kind of, and to have that be physical in some way, like a kiss would have done. Right. So it lacked the filmmakers lacked the courage to do that. And then the critical establishment lacked the courage to actually, you know, bring that up in relation to the film. That is, you know, a lack of courage. So actually, I think kind of both uh, um, sets of structures, the, you know, the filmmakers didn't fulfill their obligation or lack the courage of their convictions, you know, and I think the critical establishment did the same, you know. I think part of why, why it's so important as well, I think you're right, it should be a kiss. Yes. You, know, you don't just see them in bed. You don't see them fucking. You just need yes. to see a kiss between them, and and that would really be the perfect way to end the film. And I think part of the reason that that is so important is that you, although it's not um, shown directly, you see it from behind the two of them when they're sat on the beach together when they're teenagers, yes. and Kevin uh, masturbates yes. Sharon. Yeah, you know, that is a moment of intimacy and and a moment of physical touch. And in those last few lines of the film, that's exactly what Sharon brings up. Is yes. he says. That I've never really touched anyone since. Yes. Exactly. So it like it, it the film foregrounds it completely at that point, and then just fades into this really anodyne shot. I felt exactly the same thing once I was really paying attention oh. to it. Really anodyne shot of just the two of them not really looking at anything. Just Chiron's just being slightly cradled by Kevin, and then it goes into a, a sort of a dreamlike imagery or flashback of um, of Chiron on the beach when he was you know, six, seven mm. years old, and you go. Yes, it's like two it's, grown men kissing it's is such a cop out. too transgressive. I really did for feel that. that. Yeah, I um, agree with you. And yeah. actually, seeing if Beale Street could talk brings up the point even more strongly, because if Beale Street could talk is suffused with love. I mean, it begins, you know, with this gorgeous shot of the couple coming into being and coming into being together, you know, and they're chic and they're holding hands and they look beautiful, right? The centerpiece of the film is really kind of the lovemaking scene, yeah? Because, you know, kind of, you see it from her point of view. It's all almost kind of like spiritual. It's all about feeling, right? Yet kind of the bodies are put into play, right? Mm -hmm. So, you, you know, you see his body full on display, kind of, you know, later on, kind of you see at least kind of her breasts, right? Though, you know, it's kind of um, elegantly handled. Yeah, because kind of the focus is on, on feeling rather mm. than, you know, but the physicality is not removed from feeling, right? Yeah. It's kind of, it's constantly negotiated, reassured, yeah? It's kind of a way of getting to togetherness. And actually, you know, the carnality, the spirituality, you know, the way that this becomes the center of the whole film kind of really puts Moonlight further into question. It does kind of, to me, kind of underline the cowardice and fear uh, of, of a physical expression of love between men in the first film. Mm. I agree. And, and also, um, they, share, they share an element in that they're both about virginity. 
Yes. In a way, it's her first time. That's you right. find out afterwards. That's um, right. But that but it makes that kind of the, the noise she makes. Yes. Uh, where finally he enters her. Yeah. And it cuts. Yes. It, like you make it, it's, ama- it's, it's amazing anyway. And then that extra context that she reveals later did you know it was my first time? Yes. Makes it that, that much more meaningful. And of course, uh, in Moonlight, it's all about that he's a virgin and mm. he's only done this one intimate act with someone and yes. and it kind of there should be something yes. at the end I mean he's bloody been waiting for like 10 <laughs> years right like you know yeah. so it does feel like a real um, cop out um, I want to bring up two things about if Beale Street could, could talk mm-hmm. that I, I noticed for the I noticed right so kind of for me one of the great pleasures of watching films at least you know one other time it's just that you notice you know you notice mechanisms that you hadn't noticed the first time and what i really noticed this time around was how brilliant how brilliantly the film uses changes in focus mm. yeah kind of you know so sometimes actually the camera doesn't move but actually the the focus will rack and the accent will be on one person or the other person. You know, the scenes with the family at the very beginning of the film mm. are full of kind of, of quite slight, yeah, kind of changes in focus that I think kind of really enrich the film. It adds kind of like a, dyna- a dynamism within the frame of shift of attention between kind of one person to mm. the other, which actually it maintains that, that device of kind of changing focus within the shot is part of the film's style and is maintained throughout. And sometimes it's very noticeable as well. Yes. You know, so the, uh, the conversation between the two dads in the bar, the conversation between, is it Daniel, Brian Tyree Henry's character? Yes. And, uh, and Fonny over the, t- over the table. It, it's, that conversation in particular starts off with, um, it's sh- uh, not shot reverse shot, but it's cuts between the two of them. And then it goes to this moving camera that moves to Daniel, then back to Fonny, then to Daniel, and it's done in one take. And then it ends up with this shot where uh, Fonny's in the background, Daniel's in the foreground, and the focus racks between them. And it's like mm. the, 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 the conversation has brought them together in this way. And that's the and then that that shot is the um, kind of most emotionally charged part of that conversation. It's mm. where Daniel is really internally reliving hmm. things that happened to him in prison that he doesn't speak yes, about. where he says white people are the devil. It's just after that, but yeah, yeah. it's in that conversation. But, um, um, and it's, he actually doesn't say very much in that shot. He's really kind of just, he's looking basically into the distance. Hmm. Not just, just he's in himself then. Hmm. Um, and it's done through, through the editing and the way the camera is used to gradually bring these characters together. Hmm. It's wonderful. Uh, the other thing that I noticed this time around, and which I think is important, actually, I kind of, you know, so the film, in many ways, is about the incarceration of black men. It, the, the first line in the film is something like, I hope you never get to see the person you love always constantly behind glass or something like that. It's the first narrated line. Yeah. You know, so, and then, of course, at the end, we get all of these images of of, of black men you know, being arrested or being brutalized or in work camps or, you know, kind of, yeah. So, so it's not just, this is not just, um, uh, Fon's story. It's, a, you know, a story of black men in America. But what I really loved about this film is that because of the structure of the film, where 
you know, things progress, but there's also a flashing back too, constantly, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a flashing back too in different elements, really. So it feels like throughout the film, um, Fonts is... Funny. Funny is always in prison. And Funny and... Tish. Tish are always in love, mm. right? So this combination of always being imprisoned, always being in love, always having to struggle, always having to bring the family in, always being under threat by that policeman and so on, you know, it's kind of... It, it lends kind of um, a sense of, of time in which all of these all of these aspects of you know what is um, part of you know uh, a condition under which kind of black masculinity is lived in the states it kind of it 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 brings them all together it makes them all kind of be at one and I think what is lovely and beautiful about this film is that, you know, along with the oppression of black men, which is a structural oppression in which the film shows you how that oppression is structural, you know, how kind of black men are in prison, right? And how that's not the fault of this crime or that crime. It's a structural kind of problem in America. But along with that, there's also love and resilience and family mm. and grace yeah, and, yeah, yeah, which I think is beautiful, and actually I think that's something that the structure kind of brings to it that these things are coexistent in time. It's it's well I think it's well put the, the idea of Fonny being imprisoned throughout, mm. you know, because because um, because basically all the, well all the time that you see him uh, being free is effectively in flashback, mm. and. Um, uh, I mean, I, I said in the first podcast that the, the two stories kind of run concurrently and they don't actually. I've noticed a second mm. time. The flashbacks are, they, they do pick and choose, they jump about mm. in the past. Um, but, which I think gives it more of a kind of, it makes it clear clearer than I realised the first time that this is one structuring story mm. that flashback kind of informs. Mm. Um, well, I think it's a beautiful thing um, that the film does, you know, because it, it does bring in oppression but also it brings in community, you know, it does bring up injustice, it also brings up love. I suppose you know? those are the areas, that those, those two sequences that you picked up on where you're shown a montage of photographs mm. of police brutality and um, uh, uh, people being in cast race and guys in prison, all that sort of thing. Because um, we had a problem with the title the first time round, and I still have that problem with the title of it, trying to indicate a universality of experience that I don't think the film is actually communicating, but in those moments it is, and it's I reaching think, I think it, it is. I, I actually do think that that, you know, so I I still have problems with the last line, right? So, you know, the, the title begins something like, you know, um, Louis Armstrong and my father were born on Beale Street. There's a Beale Street in every street in America. Yeah, yeah we all have to talk about the impossibility and the necessity of speaking about that experience and that experience is one of the incarceration of black men mm. you know and kind of in the problem of what it is to be a man in a culture that doesn't let you be one right and yeah kind of those shots of 
you know, uh, um, Fawny being unable to defend himself and his anger around that. And, and actually, the film does kind of make it a general condition in America. That's why you have the opening line, you know, I hope you never get to see the man you love always behind glass or whatever. And that's why you get all of those pictures, which actually I had misremembered because... You know, I thought they happened more halfway through the film, where actually it's right at the very end. And right at the start as well, there's a series right at the yeah. start. Yeah, so, you know, so so the film is very much kind of trying, through this individual story, to talk about the story of, you know, a black man in America, or, or black man being jailed in America, and so on. So I think it does succeed in doing that. What, it, what I think it doesn't succeed in doing was the question of the drums, yeah, you know, I think uh, um, it's funny how I noticed actually. For now, the film starts off with that quote and it ends up with "It's the sound of drums," and then strings start exactly, and they're like, and the strings are happening over the word drums. I know, and it's really dissonant actually. And the only time you hear any drums is when someone puts on a record. Yeah, and the soundtrack is beautiful. The soundtrack, the soundtrack is beautiful. makes me want to cry. And don't get me wrong, but, I love the music. But you're completely right film. that it's totally dissonant. Um, and actually, I think you could have suffuse the film with love which is really so beautiful to see um and also made anger a mm. kind of a component of that i mean baldwin always did you know um so so i do feel that that is uh, something that is missing in the film I, I agree with that and actually i'm i'm still really in love with the film and particularly the first half, two-thirds of it, I think in some ways are like a really great hangout movie. Mm. I know it's dealing with some really harsh stuff mm. and you're kind of seeing characters going through some very tough times, particularly when Daniel uh, comes around and has, has dinner with them. You know, he's, he's talking about some very, very difficult yes. uh, things, reliving them in his mind. And the line, I just remember the line that, that where it's that rack focus shot, mm. is he's saying the worst thing about it is they can make you so fucking scared. Yes. And he just kind of trails off and repeats and he takes such a long time to and he's mm. just oh it's, it's, it's amazing yet <laughs> I think um, there is something I, I, I like to live with these characters I like to literally hang out with these characters um, so it's not in the same way as like a Richard Linklater movie does it where it's just like they live these consequence free lives in yeah. those movies where they're just smoking um, like people are talking about real things and having real conversations but they're also deeply in love and they yes. deeply care for each other and, and they, they you know, care about their families and you get these lines that just express it like when um, Tiana Paris the sister mm. character says unbow your head sister yes that's, you know? that's the line it. to remember exactly it's, it'll, yeah. and so I can, I can sort of imagine myself revisiting this like someone would revisit Dazed and Confused or something like that I think there are moments that are just extremely beautiful that you know and they are it's a very poetic film you know, so kind of that moment was when he's in jail, but he's in a studio and he's smoking and he's just looking at that piece of wood and kind of, you know, what'll come out of that, right? And then you hear that his dream is like to build a table where all his family can eat, mm. right? I mean, the images and the smoke and the lighting and so on. I mean, it is just kind of very beautiful to look at. You know, the scene where he finally realizes that he's not going to get the help he needs to get out of jail. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's kind of, you know, and it's not just that you, this this focus goes off, yeah, it goes out of focus, but also the image kind of swirls and, you know, there's something that's dissolved and lost and so on, right? 
I mean, I think kind of the film is full of yeah. beautiful things like that. He kind of dissolves into prison. Yeah. And then the next time we see him, it's three or four years later and they've got a kid there. Yeah. yeah. So I think, I think all of that, um, I, I like and admire very much. I think some of my problems uh, with the film uh, are still there. And actually, I think they've become more um, acute. Yeah, they've come mm. more into view by seeing Moonlight again. Because I think, you know, so of the many problems that the last third of Moonlight has, one of them is the performance of Chiron. Yeah. yeah. The actor just isn't good enough. And actually, he's got that same kind of stilted way of, you know, saying very little that actually Tish has. Mm. You can actually almost compare the performances. It's the same style of performance, right? And I think actually the director has to take some of the blame for that. I think that's probably true. I also, I think that's also true to a lesser extent, but also to an extent of Stephen James, who plays... Um, funny. No. He's more expressive, but still, I think I think the all the characters, all the actors around them, bring much more They're expression. Fantastic. But they bring much more expression yes. to what they're doing, and they build much richer characters. I think. Yes. And I think around Tish and Fonny, it's um, storytelling and camera work and editing that's doing the work, and lighting particularly. I mean, yes. the cinematography is just. We should look at the cinematographer's name actually, because. You know, it definitely deserves to be mentioned. Though, though, actually, it deserves to be mentioned, but no, I don't think with wholehearted praise. Really? No. I think there are moments where he kind of lets down the actors, you know, that kind of... You have incredibly beautiful people, and actually, they're often made not to look so good for no real reason whatsoever. James Laxton is the cinematographer. Okay. Well, he also I, did Moonlight. I have issues to pick with him, um, because... You know, one of the things that really struck me, so we're talking about all the supporting actors, really, mm. right? And, you know, how alive they are. And some of them are, like, you know, um, Tish's parents, uh, Regina King, and I forget the name of the father, are fantastic. Coleman something. Yeah. Um, uh, um, Coleman Domingo. Yeah. Um, Terrell. Brian Tyree Henry. Brian Tyree. If you love him so much, you're going to have to learn his name eventually. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> Brian Tyree Henry is kind of a genius really i mean he just he walks into the frame and he brings a world with him it's really quite extraordinary to see hmm. but and this is where i blame the director right so you know because i mean kind of i think last time you praised him very much for like his focus on faces and the humanity and whatever but actually kind of if you look at diego luna and is it paco uh oh um pedro pascal pedro pascal I mean, those are brilliant actors and they're very charismatic actors, mm. you know, and they're not well lit. They're not kind of shown to advantage, you know. Um, I, 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 yeah, I mean, you know, so Diego Luna comes and he's charming, but he looks like terrible, you know, and I, I just didn't understand that. I mean, he's, you know, he's a waiter, he's a friend. Why can't you envelop him in the same kind of romantic glow, mm. right? Like, you know, his hair is all stringy, and you think, why? Right? And, you know, uh, Pedro Pascal, you know, he's one of the most beautiful men in the movies, right? You know, and kind of, you know, you're mm. showing him like that. Um, and actually, I think, you know, if there are other takes of 
you know, what he offers, they should have been chosen. So again, he's somebody who kind of imbues the character with life, but you've seen him much better and shown to much greater advantage. And I think the director could have got, could have, could have shown them off to better advantage. You think it's a little lazy, maybe, or um, not enough care has been taken, or... Or, you know, he's just... I think performances are great. I mean, Pedro, what do you say about other takes? I think Pedro Pascal's performance is... No, I think, I think it could have been better. There were words that were too rushed together sometimes. And he's got that sickly look, right? Yeah. Um, and well, so I mean, on, which is completely unnecessary. Well, the look... Uh, the look I kind of agree on, actually. Um, oh. But not the performance. I think... Yeah, I, I. God, I bought him completely. He's in it for one scene and he... And it's a short scene, and you again, you you get everything about about him and how he wants to protect. I don't know if it's his sister or his girlfriend or what relationship they have, but um, uh, but you you get completely, you know, sort of um, how much he wants to protect and how little he wants to be, and how little time he wants to give to to um, the mother because she can only basically bring pain to her. I mean, I w- I won't quibble too much, right? Yeah. Because I think he is very good. But, you know, he is also Pablo Pascal. I could have, I've seen him, you know, kind of be better and more charismatic. And, you know, and, and I think uh, it, I've seen him be better. He's Pedro right? Pascal, not Pablo Pascal. Pedro Pascal, right. Um, so, um, yeah. you know, I, so I think actually those two Hispanic actors, which he is trying to make a case for, right? Like the film is structured, it's a very, very intelligent film. It's structured to bring in Italian-Americans and Jews and Hispanics and Puerto Ricans all to be part of, you know, uh, um, this mosaic that is kind of masculinity in America, you know, in which this film has kind of a focus on blackness, right? But in which kind of all of these other, um, you know, subaltern peoples figure, right? And of course, you know, at the head of that, and as the height of evil is the is the Caucasian policeman, really, mm. you know. So the film is very smart about doing that. Well, you know, kind of, why not let those Hispanic actors kind of look better and shine better? Mm. It's, I, okay, that's a minor point, but I observed it. Well, it's your right to, and then, and and I suppose how lovely that they showed a Jew. Yes, <laughs> though actually, you know, again, I, I, my, my, I really kind of don't believe him, and I thought about this the first time in that he's Dave Franco. Like I just, all I see is Dave Franco in him, really. Oh, I, I didn't see Dave Franco at all. Oh, I didn't realize he is it was Dave, him. He is Dave Franco. <laughs> so, I didn't, I didn't notice it. Actually. Whereas actually, it struck me that again, I keep on coming back to Daniel, but Brian Tyree Henry. I look at him and I know perfectly well it's Brian Tyree Henry. It's a mark of a great actor that I just get into the character immediately. Oh, he's, he's, you know, he's in a whole other league. Um, I think he's, you know... Was Dave Franco in that respect stood out? In a way that actually someone like Pedro Pascal didn't. Yeah. You know, he's... I didn't... Um, Diego Luna. I didn't recognise him as David Franco, actually, so thank you for telling me. But I did think that the film was so heavy-handed in um, the way that it introduced him. Yeah, it introduced him with the cap. Capel. The yeah. capel, you know, before you see the face or be, before you know anything about him, you know he's a Jew, <laughs> right? Mm. Which I kind of... Yeah, I didn't have a problem with that. I mean, I, you, get I, to, you get to see him fairly quickly. And, yeah, well, I didn't, I didn't like that. Um, you know, mm. kind of... It's, it's, it's... Yeah, 
I mean, I wonder what part of a thinking process is because, I mean, you know, there could be a very good reason for it. So, for example, you know, I mean, every time kind of you see a character in a movie uh, um, that's black, it's almost like, the you know, you see the blackness before the character in a way that, you know, is not true of, you know, when you see white actors. So maybe the director's trying to do something with that. I don't know. Well, we did speak on the previous podcast, and you were quite complimentary about the way in which the film gives you senses of other worlds that people live in yeah, through, yeah. through just a shot sure. or two. Yeah. Um, so you see the white lawyer, for instance, and you just get three or four shots of, of his kind of, him in a, a sort of smoking lounge or something with his superiors and how mm. he's just kind of doesn't really fit in there. And you don't really need to see any more than that. He's not in the film very much anyway, but you get the sense of his world. And as you said, the old woman... Uh, who I who seemed, came came across to me Jewish as well. Yes. Who runs the store? Yes. And you got the sense of her, as you said, having grown up in a shtetl and coming yes. out of yes. fled here. Um, and uh, I think showing um, the Dave Franco character, his name's Levy, mm. which it's a perfectly good indication as well of his Jewishness. Sure. Um, but uh, showing his capital first off is a shorthand. Sure. Um, but I don't think it's kind of. I, it didn't strike me as something that was really unwarranted. or. I just found it heavy-handed, mm. you know, because um, that's the first thing you see about him. And then the shot continues and you just see his back, right? And it lasts about, I don't know, five or ten seconds. I mean, they go up the stairs, mm. right? And all you see about him is his back and the capel, you yeah. know. So I kind of, I, th- I thought it was a bit too much. Okay. Um, you know, but... There's something I noticed about eyes in the film and this was only really a minor thing but I really picked up on it and again I'm going to go back to the scene with Daniel because mm. um, that's where I noticed it is um, he has these shots where they're, he, he and Fonny are sitting at the table talking and smoking and when they're talking about uh, him his having been in prison and he's talking about the stuff they can do to you and how the white man is the devil he he looks he do, his face doesn't move but he looks like kind of extremely mm. to to what well, his right to the camera's left, um, and so you see, you see redness at the back of his eyes. Yes. And the only other time you see redness in someone's eyes is towards the end when you see Fonny uh, behind the the glass in in prison, having yeah. been involved in a fight, and one of his eyes is half bloodshot, really deeply yes. bloodshot. Yes. Actually, and, and I love how nothing about that fight is mentioned in the scene. Mm. You know, it's just you see it in his face, but nothing is said. Yeah. That's that's um, lovely. And it just struck me that that's the only two times you, you see that. And I think that kind of related because I think it's, it's it struck me as something, as kind of connoting uh, something about um, the scars that prison leaves on people. And how, I mean, those two, those two characters aren't the only two that have been in prison. I think the dads talk about it yeah. a little bit and they mention it. Um, and, and you don't see it in them, I don't think. But... Um, there's something about the kind of because on the one hand redness in the eyes the way that Fonny has it connotes uh, yeah, injury mm. um, and the way that uh, Daniel has it connotes tiredness and kind of weariness mm. um, and and it's and it's as though kind of in prison it's foregrounded and ha- having left prison it's just always going to be there mm. in in the back of your eyes like I and. I, I think I don't like you can't ever say like how deliberate that is, but it, I re- it really struck me. You really see you know where the character looks at another character the way that Daniel does that with his eyes, mm. and and you notice it really deeply, and that's that that, that felt really 
it felt meaningful to me. It's interesting that you mentioned that because what I loved about that scene was the way that the actors were lit. So there are moments in the film where their faces almost go dark. Yeah, so they're like... Um, and what you see is their eyes and the outline of their lips and, mm-hmm. you know... And I thought it was almost like a kind of... It was like almost, I don't know, like the camera showing their souls or something, that, or their, yeah, mm-hmm. their spirit, because, you know, um, the, 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 there was a, a, a relative absence of light so that their skins faded into the darkness as even the outlines of, you know, their lips, their teeth, and their eyes came out and, you know, became sharpened. It was almost like kind of, mm-hmm. you know, they were speaking through each other kind of um, with an intimacy, you know, that mm. um, that is rendered kind of or communicated visually. But it's an internal kind of, you know, mm. communication, really. There's something that I felt about that scene the first time, which I didn't say in the first podcast, um, which is that when I, it's, it's better to me the second time because the first time I saw that scene, when he first actually bumps into Daniel on the street and then brings him back mm. to the apartment, um, I was suspicious of Daniel um, until it became clear later on in that scene that uh, Daniel was just literally just an old friend and he mm. was happy to see him. Um, I was suspicious that he was um, trying going to try and scam or rob. Yes, because um, that's funny. what that's what you expect of Brian Tree. <laughs> I just it's a little, it's actually it's rather like if you remember the the widows the second widows podcast that we did with yes. with Lee Kemp, um, he talked about and again this is something that I felt and didn't say the first time um, the scene in widows in which Michelle Rodriguez goes to the architect's wow. husband's house and discovers that she's passed away and her her uh, facade falls apart, um, and then she starts crying on the sofa because then yes. it kind of brings up that she's lost someone and Lee talked about how the first time he saw that he wondered whether she was doing something whether she was playing something yeah, when yeah. she started crying until it became clear that no she was just for real mm. um, and and so I think that I felt the same thing in this as I did in that scene in Widows and um, I don't know, I don't know if that's unfair or it, you know if it because the scene was definitely better the second time, once I knew from the very beginning that Daniel was mm. just for real. And when you see him come in the door and he's grinning, and it both made us laugh, that big open mm. grin he has, he's not kind of covering anything up, which I kind of feared the first time. Yes. It's a better scene for me the second time. So actually, there's, a, there's a corollary between that scene and the scene of betrayal in Moonlight. Because if you remember, he, in that scene... He is the witness that the rape couldn't have possibly taken place. Mm. Yeah, but the police coerce him so that he can't make that statement because he's already got a previous record. Yes, that's right. The, the, the lawyer talks about that, doesn't he? Yeah. So, yeah. So, so the scene the second time around is also kind of overhung with this real friendship, this real intimacy, and also this you know, this acknowledgement of how terrible things are and this inability to help make mm. it better. And in fact, actually, you know, to make yeah. it worse. So, and I think in that sense, it does have kind of a corollary with the scene in Moonlight. Yeah, that's true. And again, I, and I think the, the, the complexity that you were talking about around that, that, mm. that part of Moonlight, 
exists here as well because on the one hand it's a kind of betrayal like he could say something that would support Fonny on the other hand who's going to believe him really and then and he also talks about in, in that conversation scene he talks about how the police can do absolutely anything they want to you mm. and um, so it would be a symbolic act yeah you can do much yeah. you know to, no no to, the sense of powerlessness yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. anyway let's wrap it up yeah so I'm really glad I saw it a second time. And I'm uh-huh. glad I watched Moonlight again as well. And I, I, ultimately, I think this is a superior film to Moonlight. Yes, I think overall. so too. Um, but I like them both. And I'm glad that we talked out kind of the issues around that final third of Moonlight. Because um, uh, they've been they've been sort of in the back of my head for a while. And every time you bring them up, I'm like, oh, we really need to... Mm. <laughs> yes. Because you bring them up more than uh, most endings of films. Well, as, a DG, it, as you might. I think, well, it bothered me for all kinds of reasons the ending and really part of the reason why it bothered me so much is because other people weren't weren't making that call and also when you did make that call people many who have not seen the film it must be said were doing ridiculous thing oh well you know kind of you don't have to have a sex scene in every film or you know kind of why can't you show somebody being a very like you know the kinds of arguments that you could just make abstract because you actually haven't seen the film and you can't speak about the specifics and it was annoying me no end mm. right because of course you know you can make a film about anything and you can make a film about any kind of person you can, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, so you you know you can't talk about these things without talking about the specifics right <laughs> yeah of this particular film in this particular way film yeah mm. you know kind of so um yeah so it it's been like um an itch yeah it's, it's good to scratch it yeah <laughs> and that's a very good way to end the, the podcast thank you very much for listening we are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on uh, iTunes, SoundCloud and YouTube um, uh, on social media we're on Facebook and Twitter at eavesdropmovies is the Twitter account and uh, the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com thank you very much for listening bye bye okay excellent okay.